to this edition of the Perspective in Inflammation podcast, a series brought to you by the CSF. In this edition, we will be exploring the evolution of RA registries. My name is Anja Strangfeld and I'm from the German Rheumatism Research Center, in short DRFZ, which is located in Berlin, Germany. And I'm here today with Professor Loreto Camona from the Instituto de Salud Musculoesqueletica, located in Madrid, Spain. Loreto, was this okay? Wow, how you pronounce so well musculoesqueletica? That's so difficult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very happy that we have the chance today to talk about biologic registries and we know each other for quite a long time through our work with the biologic registries. And um, maybe we should, yeah, today we want to discuss the history of these biologic uh, registries, how they were developed. Maybe some of you don't know the whole history. We are already that old that we know <laughs> the whole everything. Yeah. And um, we also want to review some important lessons that we have learned from the registries and why we think they are important and what have um, been done, what is their actual role as well. And finally, we also want to report on the EULA COVID-19 register that was involved just lately this year. And yeah, maybe I should start with the um, beginning of the of the registries, which was in the late 1990s, early 20 or 2000. And at that time, tin inhibitors were um, firstly improved for the treatment of RA. And they were the first substances used in rheumatology that had a specific target. And the community, the rheumatologic community, was on one hand, you, we were all very happy about those really effective treatments because they gave the chance that patients where the CSD mark, the conventional synthetic DMARs had failed, they could be treated with another option. And we have to say those treatments were really effective. On the one hand, the community was also concerned about possible side, side effects of those treatments due to their mode of action, especially um, the concern was with serious infections and the development of malignancies. And therefore, the so-called biologic registries were set up in various European countries, like in Spain, UK, Sweden, and also in Germany. And here we also got to know through, through our work with the registries. And after a short while, um, also other countries um, set up their registries. And um, nowadays, I, I can't even count how many um, countries have registers. And um, yeah, and all of them, all of the registers have their um, specificities. Some may link their data to the population registers, like in the Scandinavian countries. We in Germany, we are not allowed to do this. Therefore, we have um, detailed information on disease activity and glucocorticoid dosages, for example. But all registers, they have the intention to look at the long-term safety and effectiveness of the treatments. And um, 
to look at questions that cannot be answered by randomized controlled trials. And yes, Loretto, how was your experience with the registers? So you have been there also quite at the beginning. Yeah, I, I still remember uh, one day I was working at the Spanish Society of Rheumatology in the research unit and they, they had this meeting of the very old grumpy old men. <laughs> And well, maybe they were not that old at that time, but <laughs> I was very young. And uh, they say, here, uh, Loreto, we are going to do a database of uh, biologics and the name is going to be BioBadasser. And I say, yeah, but what is it about? You have to do this. I say, okay, so do we have any other, you know, any other registers or databases to, you know, get uh, some, uh, um, to know them or something and they say well we know that the British and the Germans and the Swedish are trying to do something so try to uh, write to them write them and uh, ask them how to do ours and I it was very young <laughs> nobody knew me and I start writing everybody and uh, no answer and they said no we are we do not have we we are in, in the process to to have a register but we still don't have anything that was 1998 or 1997 it was very very early well very early. so yeah it was very very early so I, I tried to you know to to understand what a register was um, at that time I, I also uh, uh, had work in the Spanish medicines uh, agency for a while and uh, 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 and uh, and they wanted to to be part of the register also at some some somehow what uh, were many other things and omerat in omerat they started this safety group and they were decided what type of things we had to measure so it was all these things happening at the same time and I, I think they 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 became real in in Europe, but while you the three of you you know uh, fixed the template, the Manchester template, and more the the the, the big three registers <laughs> were able to you know merge the long in the long very long term. Uh, I, we were left out because we had no idea that you were only going to focus on array, and we focused on everything that was more biologic. And we didn't know that what uh, what other things were included in that template. But it was it was very interesting. And I think at the end, being different also was not that bad, because we had that thing of merging or showing other things. So it was not it was not that bad. I think I, I learned so much with time. I remember you were the first ones who could also. Um for example, evaluate infections across the um, different diagnoses. And I mean, we have to say, you were the first ones who found out about tuberculosis risk in TNF inhibitors. <laughs> so, uh, I, I still remember, I still remember. Yeah, you will not believe how this happened. I was in, in Manchester because I, uh, at some point I, I wanted to develop uh, a research Unit. Well, the research unit at that time was myself, so that was the unit, right? Yes, one. <laughs> so I wanted to create, develop a research unit in the Spanish Society of Rheumatology. So I went to Manchester to see how they, how they, 
they, they managed to develop one and there were 90 people at that time. It was like, oh my God, I will never be able to get, to get this. But uh, I, I was uh, doing the first analysis, the first six month analysis of, of our register. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I, I started doing the analysis and I said, oh my God, this is, this is really more than a signal. This is, this is quite a, quite a, a lot of uh, cases of tuberculosis. So uh, now I, I told Alan Silman, who was the, the boss at that time, and he said, how can you have a register? You don't have a register. And I said, yes, we, said, we do one. And here we have a tuberculosis we have. Uh, in fact, uh, the majority didn't believe that I had found, found that until the ACR. That was, this happened in July when, I, when, when we saw this and then we, uh, or the, the end of June, July, something. So it was right at the time to send to the ACR, to submit to ACR. Then in the ACR, we sent the, the poster. And uh, at that, in that same year, it was uh, Fred Wolf who said that tuberculosis was not a problem because he couldn't find a, a, a difference, but the, the rate in the United States was much lower than in Spain, so we were able to, to see it. And um, well, in, in, I remember that ACR when people came and said, oh, actually you had a register, that was true. <laughs> so it was kind of, yeah, why, why wouldn't you believe that we have a, <laughs> a register? Yeah, I like very much the idea of providing data for the society because immediately, once we knew that tuberculosis was a problem, we uh, got together and we developed recommendations and we look at the rates before and after. And that was a change time. Mm -hmm. That was a change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it was great. You, you had the recommendations and then the rates went down. I, mm -hmm. I think this was a very good success history of the registers also. They, mm -hmm. They were, um, from that time point on, I think everybody was also convinced that those real world data, how mm. you can call it, um, yeah. are really important to, and I mean, it shows also two, two things. Like the first thing is then there were, there was a signal in, in, in the States with spontaneous reporting before, but there was no denominator. So without yes, a denominator, you you can all only say yes we have the signal but we don't we can't put it into perspective and and the other thing is you need you need the prevalence for <laughs> in mm -hmm. in your in your events or if if it's yeah, very yeah. very rare it's hard to um, say yeah. something about yeah and 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 rare effects that's what when we went to the next step right and we have to move uh, not 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 join but not even merge but because we did a, a meta-analysis but if we hadn't had registers in so many countries we couldn't have seen what happened with lymph or melanoma or things like that yeah. why don't you tell me something about that experience because i i i wasn't that experience anymore the the, the merging and all those uh, uh, meetings from our biologic registries meetings or the melanoma analysis? Yeah, melanoma analysis and the lymphoma analysis because I was not involved myself. How was, how was that? Oh, this was at, at the beginning was really strange because melanoma is a, also a very rare event. I mean, if you look at your data, if we look at 
our data we have not a lot and um, that's why it was really important to, um, to make a combined analysis. And then we set together all the registers and um, we were thinking of what would be the best um, to, to do. And Joachim was at that time, he was not retired <laughs> and he had a mm -hmm. head on this analysis and we said, okay. And we were thinking of, I mean, just to count rates and, and then um, would not be sufficient. So maybe we should standardize it like age and sex. And then we found out as well that there are so many differences in the melanoma um, incidence and prevalence in the, in the um, respective countries that we, that we have to, um, that we have to standardize that, that we can't just put all together. So like a kind of um, pooling. There was no way to, to pool it. So we were only able to to um, report those rates standardized on, on base of the population rate in this respective country. And mm -hmm. what I've never thought is that um, there's a very high melanoma rate in Sweden, whereas in Spain or Portugal, it's, it's quite- well, but, uh, but I tell you why, because they come to the beaches in Spain and they get uh, burned. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we are not, we are just so used to it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think so too, because, um, and, and they half a year, they don't have enough sun. And when they have sun, they... <laughs> yeah, they weren't. Yeah, yeah. but that, that was, well, the, those are collateral findings that we get from the register that we never, we never expected. Like nobody's really looking at those kind of things. And then, yeah, yeah we learned a lot uh, about those collateral things. Yeah. Mm. It was a very great experience to, um, to come together and to make those two analyses, also with the lymphoma. But um, also with the lymphoma, it was not that easy. So we could only look at how is the distribution of the lymphomas under the, under the um, different substances. So we were not able to, yeah, the, the country specific differences are also quite big. And for example, um, one of the first collaborative analyses that I tried to do was in 2010 or 11 mm -hmm. um, with the pancreatic carcinoma. And I, I thought that lunomide um, could, be, could be a risk factor for, for this carcinoma. And then I was asking um, Kimi from the BSRBR and Johan from, from Sweden, and we were all looking in our data, but then we found out that, for example, leflunomide is not really prescribed in, <laughs> in the UK or in Sweden even. It was yeah. 4% or so. They don't prescribe it. So you have to keep it in, in mind for their, the differences are quite big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There are more things than, than just uh, the drugs. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And so, I think it's also very interesting what we came along um, with the methodology, like since yeah. beginning mm. up to now, we've learned so much about our um, mm. how to analyze the um, events. Yeah, with the yeah. In fact, uh, there was this task force, the Eula task force, on how to that it became more than a, a task force because at the end it was it became a reporting guideline. 
for registers. So it's now it's in Equator for me. That makes me so happy to see it in Equator. Something coming from you, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But um, Bio there was was it from the first um, start on? Was it web based or did you also start with paper? Oh, we started with uh, faxes. So uh, we had three types of faxes. It was for the patient, for the treatment, or for the uh, adverse event. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, we had a, a, a fellow who came every every afternoon and then entered the data. But it was it was very early on when we moved to to online. In fact, I think we were the first online because. Uh, Whenever I talked to the, the British and I, I couldn't I couldn't believe that we were the first ones. I said, how come? I thought the rest of the world was more advanced than that we were. And uh, we were online by 2000, 2000, 2001. Yeah. You were online? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was only in 1999 and then we got fed up of taxes. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I mean, Revit was started in Because in uh, in Spain we have a specific uh, recommendations on how to deal with uh, safety issues in uh, with biologics and uh, with uh, all so all all medications in in rheumatic diseases, and some of the recommendations are based on what we analyze in in the in the register. So I I think uh -huh. that's that's one of the the most important things of the registers that they inform the the guidelines. Yeah, I also think that's very important. So do you also inform them, for example, when they have a, um, like the question, um, biologics after malignancies, and you haven't published? Do you, despite this, do you then still use the data from and the result from the register? Um, if it was, uh, for instance, not published, but in a Congress, yeah, it could be used. It could be used. Yeah, because I think it's like uh, with the with COVID. You know, it, when you need safety information, you need it now. <laughs> yes. So yeah, <laughs> it's, no, you cannot wait that much. Like, um, but at least to reassure. I mean, the level of evidence will be lower because it's not enough. You don't have all the information on that, but you still use it. And and clinicians really appreciate. To have the information of, of uh, to answer the questions they are asking for. Also, the medicines agency, of course, they were asking, "Oh, is there any problem with uh, thromboembolic uh, if uh, events or not?" And we couldn't see anything. And I've, I know that in the, in July 2020, you uh, your group uh, found there was not an association. In fact, so the opposite. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we do also in, in Rabbit, the um, national agencies for drug safety and so on. They, I mean, they have to rely on the spontaneous reporting. Again, we have the spontaneous reporting and the missing denominator. So they are asking, well, what, what do you see in the register? And most of the time we, we see it a bit different because we have okay. a denominator and we have all treatments together. That's, I mean, with the and, and yeah. talking, about, yeah. talking about denominators, because I think that's the most important, that's the, not the denominator across <laughs> all of us. So um, at the beginning, we compared, we compared patients on uh, biologics, mainly anti-TNF or TNF inhibitors versus edema. Uh, but nowadays, we have to compare them uh, be between themselves, right? Because it's, most of the patients are on, on something. Now, we still have a lot of patients on, on uh, classic DMARs, but sometimes, especially for the risk, we have to compare uh, the new molecules with uh, the TNF inhibitors and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not getting easier, I <laughs> think. At the moment, it's quite complex to have an analysis that's, um, yeah. mm. that you have to, because it's a very, um, it's also very different in patients that, that have had, for example, their third or fourth line of treatment. Mm. So yeah. this, this, um, this thing already makes a big difference. Mm. Yeah, and, and the calendar year, remember, the patients at the beginning, you cannot compare them with the patients nowadays, which are completely, they're much better, much, much better, yeah. Much better, and even, <laughs> that, that's something we, we have analyzed, um, we, we made three different time periods, and we have analyzed what, um, what was what was driving the decision for the first biologic treatment in the time period um, at the beginning of the century and later on and nowadays so we have found that things like um, older age and being female and um, not having private insurance <laughs> and um, and having um, some comorbidities were in at the beginning of the century they were contradictory um, against uh -huh. uh, the decision for biologic treatment and now or for example chronic heart failure mm -hmm. and nowadays chronic heart failure is more or less a factor that is driving you to prescribe sure. biologic treatment mm -hmm. yeah because of the inflammation right yeah yes so, yeah, yeah we have changed a lot yeah we have changed a lot yeah, and the things that, that we're, we were afraid of at the beginning, now we are just yeah, so reassured they are not a problem. Yeah. yeah, right. But I remember this chronic heart failure analysis also mm -hmm. came when I was in a, um, at the Charité and I also had the patient. She was really, really nice and an old, older woman and she reminded me very much of my grandma. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, she, and then she, did, she had the chronic heart failure for a long time. And I was not aware that um, because I was very, um, yeah, it, it was my first year in the Charité. And I was not so aware that um, 
yeah, that we should not prescribe biologic. And she felt so great. She was so happy. And then I was there. Oh, your chronic heart failure is maybe in a stage we, we should not, um, where we should withdraw the treatment, and we withdrew, and and she didn't feel she didn't feel well anymore. So, and and I was thinking to myself, why why did why we can't do she? that? <laughs> yeah, 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 why? yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I really felt bad, and I was mm. I was coming here to the um, to your and I said. We have so many data. We have to think about this. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And uh, what what about today? We have so many data that we we haven't looked at. I mean, uh, we I, I don't know what to do with the registers now either because I don't know if we have enough questions for the registers. What do you think? I think yes, we have some. <laughs> <laughs> do you have some? Yeah, I mean, because nowadays uh, we can also ask um, about those different modes of action, for example. Mm -hmm. Now we have not only the TNF inhibitors, we have B-cell depleters, T-cell modulators, IL-6 inhibitors. We have now the JAK inhibitors. We have a lot of um, different, different treatments, but that doesn't make it easier because now you also have to model the decision for the treatment of this specific mode of action. So that's yeah, lots lots of channeling bias in there. Yeah. Yes. And and then we, we again come to that what you what you said um, before with the um, comparing each patient would be best to compare him with himself in, in different modes of action, but but then it's also not so good because he already had then a treatment failure more when when the patient has another mode of action. But you know what we can now do with the different modes of action can also think mm -hmm. of more individualized treatment. For example, um, patients with obesity, maybe they are better with cell-driven treatments compared to cytokine-driven treatments or something like this. Yeah. Older but don't you think that in order to do those analyses, hmm. um, we need the, we need the much larger numbers? I mean, yeah. either we 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 do analysis in all the registers at, at the same time, with I mean with all the adjustments and everything, or, or we will not have enough numbers in individual registers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things the same. Mm -hmm. And then we again have to think about the differences between the countries. So, yeah, uh, we haven't found the, the golden egg. <laughs> no, we haven't yet. We haven't. No. Well, it's uh, we've had quite a, a long conversation here about registers, <laughs> even though I think they are monsters because they take all the money and all the time and everything, <laughs> all the resources. But yes, I think they are fascinating, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, usually we don't have so much time to talk about registers so long because no, we are very focused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and yeah. But I mean, you know what I what I really found um, very nice that we are now also together in the um, COVID registers. That's um, yes. Really 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, that that's a good thing to do. Yeah, to have a specific uh, study group also for for registers and all that. Mm -hmm. And okay, we can't say register. I mean, we that we have worked with registers, mm -hmm. we know that the register is more or less a long term. Yeah. Study. Yeah, it's not it's not the COVID register. It's, it's a COVID data, database. It's a database. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's cross sectional, but I mean, mm. it was. It's, it's, it's kind of a survey more than other thing. It's a survey, not really a register. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But still very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, you, you can tell. You can tell it's been very interesting. The whole thing has been very interesting. <laughs> the whole thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of, I mean, what, what I really like, I mean, the, the COVID pandemic, I, I don't know, it's very terrible. And you know, some at the beginning, you were still in, in Madrid when you were phoning and in the background, there were all those patients. I was oh, cool. Yeah. I'm happy that I have my home office. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was, quite, it was kind of a scary. At, at some point, especially because every day everything changed. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean that's that's the importance of real world data. So if if you have enough data, and uh, we have you you collaborate like happens in the registers or in this COVID uh, register or survey or database whatever, um, you get answers much faster than if you just look at your patients. The few patients that you might have, and yeah, yeah. And I think this is a very positive thing of the pandemic that we that it brought so many scientists together. And I mm. I was never involved in networks that were growing so fast. I mean, scientifically, it's a very interesting time, also. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Mm. Yes. So um, I guess the the denominator of all these things <laughs> is collaboration right i don't think we can do anything by ourselves we cannot we cannot do it. not in epidemiology i don't know if in a lab you can do what you can discover something by yourself but in in you know in in, in at the epidemi epidemiology levels you cannot do anything with that collaboration mm -hmm. yeah yeah right mm, i think so too but that is also what what is making fun. Or I mean, yeah, it's really fun. I would fun. only sit in my, <laughs> in my yeah. It would be not very funny. Yeah, people think that the epidemiologists are boring, but look at us. We are not boring now, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> but I mean, uh, one year ago, everybody was an epidemiologist. <laughs> now everybody's epidemiologist. Now. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, yeah, at least they know what an epidemiologist is and mm. what he's doing. <laughs> well, I think uh, it's time to uh, to close to bring this to a, a closure. I think I've 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 enjoyed a lot talking to you, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. you know reviewing the the past, our glories, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our problems, and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too, Loreto, and um, I, yeah. I, I really think it, it was always fun to work with you, and I'm very happy that we are um, together mm. in the um, COVID database. <laughs> and yes. Yes, and I I also think I mean as a closing remark, I hope that um, that 
also the registers will will go on because I think we we still have a lot of questions to answer and if we as as you said if we are able to answer it in one single register or if we need collaboration with a lot of um, or with some other registers that yeah that has to be um, that has to be um, yeah evaluated and um, and I think it's a very, very good instrument, a very good pharmacovigilance instrument. And I think we did not only um, learn something about um, treatments and side effects, we learned a lot about the disease also, about mm -hmm. inflammation and how it, how it affects um, the whole body system and different other organs as well, like in RA, myocardial infarction, risk mm -hmm. and so on. So, mm. okay, I also think um, <laughs> before I can't again <laughs> talkative, um, I would also close and I hope that all those who will listen to our conversation, I mean, I enjoyed it and I hope the listeners um, enjoyed it as well, our discussion today. And I, yeah, and I will close our discussion and I want to say, please don't forget to subscribe to the CSF on your favorite podcast app and visit cytokinesignaling.com for slide summaries of the latest research and free to access CME accredited courses. And I thank you all for listening and I thank you Loretto for being here with me. Thank you. Bye. Tschüss. <laughs> Adios. <laughs> Adios. <laughs>